This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. about being in Philadelphia. <laughs> being home. Being home after a vacation, which is also good. Vacations are good, but... I need a vacation from my vacation. <laughs> but this show that we're doing Overdue right now is also going to be a live show. On... Wait, what's the deal? You, you said Overdue, but you didn't... What is that? Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been needing to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. There you go. Sorry. There you go, buddy. We haven't done this in a while. It's been a while. Uh, This week we're talking about I Heard the Owl Call My Name by Margaret Craven. But first, uh, I want to make sure we talk about my favorite thing about Philly other than being home, which is doing The bell. Yeah. The The crappy bell. bell. The broken bad bell that we have. Our broken bell. Our broken baseball team. Our Our nasty, (laughs) nasty sandwich. (laughs) come on down to gino's nasty sandwiches um (laughs) it's actually one of my favorite things it's a philly pod fest which is a thing we participate in basically every year right every year yeah basically every year that we've been able to um this 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 will be our fourth fifth it's been fourth i think yeah all right um, so on Saturday, June 23rd at 1.30 p.m. at the Philly Improv Theater, you can come see us do a disco- do Redwall? Yeah, we're, we're going to do Redwall. Redwall by Brian Jacques. Jakes. Jakes. Um, actually, I'm going to talk about Redwall because I've never read it before and Andrew's read like all of them? Most of them. Uh, so it should be a fun show. You can I was get definitely in the double digits, like of the Redwall books. By the time I stopped, you can get tickets to that show at bit.ly/overdue2018. That's bit.ly/overdue2018. You can find out more about the rest of the festival, including Andrew's 12 p.m. on June 23rd show of Appointment Television at phillypodfest.com/schedule. And we're also putting that stuff up on our social feeds. So twitter.com slash overdue pod and facebook.com slash overdue pod. Do it. You know you want to come see us do a show. Come see us do Redwall. Come see us do Redwall. And then after that, you can go see our train museum. (laughs) Our public transit museum. Oh, yeah. I was wondering. I was like, what train museum? Oh, yeah. We do have a SEPTA SEPTA museum. museum. (laughs) I walked past it a few times. and What could possibly be in there? Did they just run out of places to put the old dead trains? Do you know that the Wells Fargo Bank on Broad Street has a Wells Fargo museum in it that has what? a Wells Fargo wagon in it? <laughs> I love bank museum propaganda. That's how old. That's how banks used to be. They used to just roll from town to town, giving a, out loans. Just a wagon with a bunch of money in it. Sub subprimes. All subprime wagons. Wagon. Yep. Yes, I'm going to mortgage part of my wagon so I can get a new wagon. Um, let's talk about I Heard the Owl Call My Name by Margaret Craven. Uh, I read this book, and so this week I'm going to talk to Andrew about it. Andrew, you have not read this book. I have not correct? read the book. Cool. 
so I can spoil it for you. Is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, you can. All right. So are you craving some info? Yo, I am craving that info about the author Margaret Craven, Hit who me. was born in 1901 and died in 1980. Um, she graduated from Stanford University in 1924, and then after that, she started working as a secretary to the managing editor of the Mercury Herald. And this is a fun thing about being a woman in the workforce in 1924, is that she started writing editorials for that paper under the editor's name, and then eventually she was allowed to start doing it under her own name. Oh, neat. <laughs> so that's neato. Good. Um, after She went on after that to write for magazines and for the Saturday Evening Post, which she contributed for, uh, she contributed to that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so her first novel was this one, and it did not come out in Canada until 1967. It didn't come out in the U.S. until 73. Sure. Um, she it, it took her so long to start writing novels in part because she had a bacterial infection in her eyes that made uh, it hard to see. Uh, <laughs> no. She beat it, though, right? She did. She had the weak... <laughs> All I found is that that it uh, the problem was overcome, which oh. could mean any number of things. <laughs> get some new eyes. Get some robot eyes. Um, and it, yeah, for this uh, for this book specifically, she um, so she um, went and visited with um, what was it? It was like a priest who was living among these like native people. Every every. Everything we can find calls them Indians. I mean, we're going to avoid doing that. But like, yeah, it's... the First Nation. It's a First Nations tribe. Um, they're not or... Native Americans because they're British Columbian. But yes, <laughs> I guess they'd be Native British Columbians. Yeah the the nation that it's the book concerns a maybe village. Native Americans in the sense that North America encompasses all the countries. Yeah, and also <laughs> I like guess. I say North America, and then I'm like we. Europe called it that because of Mariko Vespucci, right? Like, isn't that why it's called America? I don't think we're allowed to talk about him. I don't think we're allowed to talk about him, but that's what it is. Um, <laughs> but it's the Kwakwakwak nation. I think there might be a schwa that I'm missing at the end of that. Um, mm-hmm. But it was originally referred to as the Kwakudul uh, nation by this guy named Franz Boas. Um, who's like a German American? Apparently, he's like the the father of American anthropo- anthropological study. Um, he seems like the founder a, of the clothing store anthropology. Also, that um, he seemed like an okay dude, all things considered. But he missed the the name was a misnomer because he was taking like a single community's name, and the the preferred term Kwakwakwak uh, comes from the language that this that these bands of tribes all all share. Cool. Um, so currently it's about 5,500 people living up in the Pacific, like kind of north, you know, north of Washington State in that part of Canada, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, I think there's like 13 governments uh, that they've organized politically. So you said 5,500? Yes. That is not a lot of people. No, it is not a lot of people. And I know that's so what little I know about this book is, is some of it is about the dwindling of that culture. Yes, for sure. And how a cult, how that culture that's fading deals with outsiders and and with like being assimilated and and the the opportunities and the hardships that come with that. I guess. Yeah, the um, um this 
nation was first like the first documented contact was with a guy I didn't know who was a real guy captain george vancouver that's where the name comes from <laughs> who um, invented vancouver who invented vancouver i mean he basically did uh in 1792 um was that's always the kind of name that we make up like like bob q-tips invented q-tips <laughs> Um, I, uh, I love George Swingline's staplers. It's, I love his work. Um, mm-hmm. in 1792 is when, uh, George Vancouver and his folks made contact, uh, with these George people. Vancouver. And of course he brought a bunch of European disease that ravaged the population as happened throughout the continent. Now, did he do it on purpose? Did he weaponize the disease? Un- unclear. Via I think. blankets or some other kind of bedding material. Hist- history, the, the research that I did seems to say that is not the case. It also okay. s- seems to suggest that this part of the world was largely, um, at the time, and certainly the book portrays this as such, that there was not uh, a lot of conflict. Um, the, what's interesting about this book is that uh, the village that is referred to as Qui or uh, Kingcum, which is a, a, a like Anglican name for the village, um, is like it is just a christian like there's just a christian parish there like there's just they're just anglican i guess so colonialism um, is there yeah colonialism's there and the book is kind of uninterested in how it got there it's just uninterested it's interested in what comes next so and to, yeah to talk about how it got there would be to get into a bunch of messy things that we try to ignore as as a culture, I think well, usually, yeah. There, uh, what I think we could t- we'll talk a little bit more about it how the book does it specifically, but I think Margaret Craven's take on it, and she was interested in it because her brother, uh, her twin brother Wilson, was up there and had been and learning about um, various native peoples of British Columbia. Um, it just seems more like a. It's coming from a place of reverence for a culture that is uh in f- danger or at least time of writing certainly was in danger of going away and what this you know this story is kind of based on various experiences um that she either heard about or talked to people about in a way that feels a little bit about you know documenting them so that we have them moving forward but also opening up questions of where to go next rather than um, dwelling too much on what happened. It's not ignorant of what happened and what has happened. Um, it's just like the, the, it happened, and now what do we do? Like we can't make we, we can't make it unhappen, and so what do we do in, instead? Yeah, and for and for that reason, I don't know that a you know white American woman would necessarily be welcomed or probably should write this book or this style of book today, we might kind of frown on that if it's so uh, so much about just like going in and and just representing this culture. I mean, it is about a white Anglican vicar who goes to this uh, village and, and lives among these people and learns about them um, in a very, I guess, my frame of reference is like dances with wolves, you know, kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that we have made enough space for for That's these it. kinds of yeah. cultures to tell their own stories, but we have made more space. Like, I think if if you're going to do a book like this, you would at least try and I would hope 
you would you try and take yourself out of it in yes. a way that the the book this book doesn't seem like it is. I don't know. I'm probably giving people the benefit of the doubt, um, but uh, yeah, there are some other you know there are artists um, from the 20th century who have helped to kind of revive Quakwakwak uh, culture. Uh, a guy named Mungo Martin, Ellen Neal, Willie Seaweed. There's a, I found a cool video of a guy named Steve Smith whose work has been featured in the Vancouver airport, and it's like not explicitly traditional like wood carving art or anything like that but it's taking a lot of those visual elements and working them into his own stuff which seems really neat so again like like a lot of parts of the world that have settlers that you know knocked out indigenous populations or or took over their land and culture um we're coming to grips with that and i think this this book is very forward-looking um in a way that is, I don't know, it, it speaks in a way to the simplicity of the book. The book is not a, like, it's not dense. It's not sprawling. It's it's really rather focused. Sure. Um, I don't know that there's any, oh, well, we should mention just that this was only the first of four books that Craven wrote. The, um, yeah, so you've his... got uh, Walk Gently, This Good Earth in 1977, which is the second novel. You've got Again Calls the Owl. So that title has led to some confusion. Some people think it's a sequel to this just at first glance, but it's not. It's not. A, it's an autobiography. Yep. And um, I think she touches on some of her experience doing this, but just as uh, insofar as it was part of her life. Yep. Yep. And then um, the home front published posthumously, I guess in 1981 was a collection of stories. So not a lot of books. Like there were, there no. were 10 years, 10 years between her first novel and her second novel. And then just a couple things like right at the end and then after the end of her life. But other than that, it was all, you know, magazines, newspapers, that kind yep. of that kind of writing that's harder to track down and harder to preserve, unfortunately, unless you're just super famous and somebody decides to collect all of your stuff into yeah. a volume like posthumously. Much more likely that you would find it in a compilation of that publication rather yeah. than actually her own work. Or in some microfiche. Ooh. Well, Andrew, I don't own a microfiche. Maybe I'm going to go get one. Okay. Right now. Okay. And then we can finish the podcast later. Okay. So we're going to take a break. Sounds good. I'm going to get my microfiche. Okay, bye. Craig, we were just on vacation. How was your vacation? It was good, but at one point, I almost had to use my toothbrush to clean my shoe. That's a true story. Wait, what? We'll I talk got... about this some more <laughs> later. But I was in danger of not having a toothbrush for a period of time. And or it's like, did you have to choose between your toothbrush and your shoes? I almost, almost, okay. yeah. It could have, it would have helped if I'd had a better toothbrush, um, and a, definitely a toothbrush that I wouldn't have wanted to part with for my shoes. <laughs> Can you help me? Wait, so I'm helping you find a good toothbrush that would be so good that you wouldn't want to use it on your shoes. Correct. That's exactly what I need. Okay. Well, in <laughs> in that case, you're in luck because we're talking about Quip this week. They're back. Oh, Quip. Yeah. Quip. Those guys. So the truth is, Craig, the, the hard, cold truth is that uh -huh. most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and forget to change our brush on time. And also, sometimes we try and brush our shoes with our toothbrushes. Yeah. It's a real thing and also so quips it, it's an electric toothbrush as i understand uh -huh. um that's actually 
not too expensive, right? It's not. No, it just okay. starts at just $25, you idiot. That's pretty cool. It starts at just $25, you dumb idiot. <laughs> have you used it? You seem you sound pretty knowledgeable. I have used it. So it's a it's a electric toothbrush like you said. Um it costs a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. Uh, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth, it's got a built-in timer, so it uh, it goes for the dentist recommended two minutes, and uh, every thirty seconds it pulses to let you know you're supposed to start brushing a different quadrant of your mouth. And not your if you've shoe. never thought if you've never thought about the quadrants of your mouth before, <laughs> you're probably not brushing right. Um, um, they've also got subscription plans that for, are for both your health and your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. So if you've ever brought an electric toothbrush. And then you try to buy new heads for it like six months later and you can't find them and you don't remember which kind of toothbrush you bought and it's just the whole thing. That's not what Quip is. Quip's just going to do it for you. That's pretty good. I've also heard that it comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks so you can use it for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth, not your shoes. Uh, And everybody loves it. It was on Oprah's O list. It was on. Uh, it was one of Time's best inventions, and it is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. And they're backed by a network of over twenty thousand dentists, hygienists, and including Andrew, hundreds of thousands <laughs> of happy brushers use it every day. Time's best. In- Do you think Time's best inventions is like an all-time thing? It's like fire the wheel, sliced bread, and a quip toothbrush. I'm not here to say one way or the other but i assume that that is definitely the case <laughs> that's the list okay so quip starts at just 25 dollars, like i said and if you go to get quip.com slash overdue right now you'll get your first refill pack free with a quip electric toothbrush so that's a five buck value if you saw five bucks on the street you'd pick it up that's what this is it's like the street for your ears yeah pick it up. <laughs> so that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash overdue uh, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Brush, those, brush your teeth, not your shoes. Quip. Craig, do you hear that? What's that? I think it's some kind of bird calling my name. I can't tell if it's an owl or if it's like a sparrow or a crow or something. Do I you hear that. I really need to tell you that I hope it's not an owl, Andrew. Okay, so what happens when an owl calls your name? You're gonna die. <laughs> I can't. Because be you owe the owl money, and it's gonna <laughs> like break your legs. No, it is not the owl. Like w- saying shame. Something <laughs> would be a real shame if something happened to you. It is the your owl- real shame if you'd had an owl pellet in your breakfast cereal. Ugh. It's just the owl letting you know that you're next on the list. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and so the book has this cold open that I have to be honest, like I read this book in a couple sittings um, spread out over like two weeks. So when I went back to like start prepping for the show, I had a, I kind of forgotten the first two pages of the book, uh-huh. which is a cold open of... Uh, of like it starts with so the doctor says to the bishop <laughs> like it's not that informal but it sounds like a joke but he's not telling a joke the he, the doctor's telling the bishop that his young victor his young vicar not his victor, young victor his young vicar <laughs> victor his young vicar has at most three years to live and at most two years of like a phys, a physically active life 
And the bishop's like, okay, great. I'll tell him, but not yet. First, I'm going to send him to my hardest parish up in British Columbia, where he'll be in charge of this village. And if I tell him now, he's going to work too hard and he'll die even sooner. Um, So that's that. And then, like, smash cut to introducing the reader to the young Anglican victor, uh, Mark Bryan. Did you mean Vicar because you said Victor again? That that one was just to make sure you were on your toast. I am definitely on my Vicar, Vicar, Victor toast. Uh, so Victor, that Victor. first, that cold open is kind of wild because it doesn't explain what this illness is. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so what is the illness is one question. No idea! Um, who is this doctor who's telling his bishop and not him? Yeah. This is like a doctor, bishop, vicar, confidentiality <laughs> sort of thing. Um, so that's another question. The, my other question is why this bishop is like, oh, this guy's, oh, no, he's going to die. That's so, that's so sad. I'm so sorry. That's, I'm really sad to hear that. I'm going to make sure that his last days on this earth are full of as much human suffering as I can find <laughs> anywhere on earth. <laughs> pretty nuts and it's like so the, the doctor says so you see my lord your young ordinand can no can live no more than three years and doesn't know it will you tell him and what will you do with him and it's what test did he do on this man i like will you tell him is, is that how is that even a question i guess yeah. he must have stole his blood while he's asleep <laughs> <laughs> like let turn your head and cough and then let me tell the bishop what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It's what the test was. Don't worry um, about it. No, don't no, worry about so, it. Please stop asking. And uh, the it bishop... It is none of your business what's wrong with you. The the doctor says, I hope you'll pray for him. And the bishop only answered, answered gently that it was where he would wish to go if he were young again and in the ordinance place. So the bishop has a lot of love and regard for this village that he's sending our vicar to. Um, but he can't tend to it personally himself. Uh, it's unclear that he's like trying to teach him a lesson, which seems mean because he just got a death sentence from the doctor. Yeah, a lesson about what? what? Yeah, <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> boy, but, I got boy. This is boy. This feels a little contrived. I don't know. It is a little contrived. It is definitely more than a little contrived because. He never really exhibits any symptoms of his uh-huh. mystery illness. Right. Um, and without spoiling the end of the book, he does not die of the mysterious illness. He does meet his end because the title said so. Because um, an owl called his name. Because an owl calls his name. He's like, hey, Derek. Derek. And then you turn around and you're like, what? And then... A- rock falls on you (laughs) what if this book were adapted into the urban legend series of films and it's just an owl enacting various urban legends of ways to die like pouring pop rocks and soda hey hey derek do you want some pop rocks and soda (laughs) it's not just the owl calling your name but it's like the owl is there with the implements of your destruction in its in its nasty bird talons. Hey, Derek, let's go in the bathroom and turn off all the lights. <laughs> bloody Derek, bloody Derek. Hey, Derek, here's a fork. Do you see that outlet? Go nuts. That's not an urban legend. It's That's... an urban legend about how <laughs> outlets will kill you. <laughs> Actual electrical safety is not an urban legend, mm-hmm. owl. No, I think it is. 
<sighs> okay, Derek, if you get in this car, there's a murder in the backseat. <laughs> but I'll follow you and it'll be fine. Is that this, did I get that one? This that owl's a jerk. Um so Mark Bryan, our young Anglican doomed vicar. Well, he has two first names also. Yes, he does. Um he is sent to uh this village in the Kwakwakawak uh nation where he is like met on this boat by this young boy. I think he's like in his teens named Jim Wallace. Um and Jim is an interesting case. So like Mark and Jim have a friendship that grows and and changes over the course of the book. Um and Jim's case is that he spent a year away from the tribe to like help his dad or uncle at like a mill and has learned a little bit about the outside world but is very eager to be back and kind of has this he has sort of an outside position he doesn't go away to go fishing with the rest of the men in the tribe he basically spends all of the time that we see him with the vicar kind of helping him out with vicar things sure and like teaching him about the village um mark is replacing this old priest named caleb who used to serve the parish um who kind of teaches him a little bit about it it doesn't happen in the present tense but mark is like recalling things that he told him um and one of the things that he sets up is mark's expectation for the people and for the tribe Uh, he's never been up here he hears that this particular tribe was never at war with the settlers um and that when they uh, were kind of operating on their own. They had this history of tribal leaders like throwing huge parties where they basically like break all their stuff and like give away their wealth just to like prove how generous they can be. Um, And in some ways it kind of can shame the people that they have like maybe defeated in conflict. But in other ways it is this like, I have spent this time accumulating wealth and now I am such a cool and great person that I'm just going to give it all away in this big festival. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, And this is a thing called a potlatch, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, about later. So Mark expects these people to be very arrogant um, because they've never, like, I guess, like, suffered a loss against settlers explicitly, uh, in a way. I mean, it sounds like they lose all their stuff all the time. (laughs) But, But it's on purpose. Like, they give it away. I like mean, it's you, on purpose, but it's societally <laughs> mandated. So, like, is uh, it on purpose? <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's a good point. Um, so, what he does see, though, when he when he meets Jim, there was pride in his eyes without arrogance. Behind the pride was a sadness so deep it seemed to stretch back into ancient mysteries Mark could not even imagine. And the the book is basically Mark coming to be that sad or understanding that sadness as a as a part of their culture um having his own versions of it Uh, i made a note for myself that to be uh reductive it's a series of scenes and episodes where mark kind of levels up as a member of the community (laughs) like things happen and then he gets like a little bit more accepted, and then gets, something else happens. And he gets the sadness points. Yeah, and gives him a level up. He like ups his. He doesn't. He never really ups his hunting skills. Um, but you just kind put of, all your points into the sadness into sad skill tree. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so you he becomes tears for fears, and you 
acquainted with the village. Um, the, the as I said, it's Kingcum Village or or Kui. Um, it's kind of led by an elected chief, the vicar, and someone from the government, kind of working all in tandem. It's a fishing village located at the foot of this big mountain. Um, and a thing that is that Craven tries to get across uh, multiple times through kind of repetition throughout the book is that the village is not just um, the plot of land or the strip of, you know, the four or three miles across that it is. Um, it is the people, it is the weather, it is the trees, it is the animals, and um, things belong there and belong to that village in a way that in, you know, European uh, or European-derived cultures, like, that just doesn't, it's not what we think of when we think of a place. Like, we think of, like, the land that is owned, right? Sure. Um, uh, the exact quote the Indian knows his village and feels for his village as no white man for his country, his town, or even his own bit of land. His village is not the strip of land uh, that is that is his as long as the sun rises and the moon sets. The myths are the village and the winds and the rains. The river is the village. The fish are the village. Um, and later on, Mark will even remark that like death has a place in this village. Because that's another thing. Like Over the course of the book, he comes to have a greater understanding of death, which is just convenient. Because he's gonna die, and he doesn't know it yet. So that that it's interesting that you read that specific line because I I found a um there's there's not a ton of mainstream coverage of this book because sure. it came out fifty years ago and and uh, I think it usually gets uh, relegated to the young adult shelves these days. Yes, but um there's there is this one on a one minute book reviews dot wordpress dot com. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which was thoughtful despite what it's uh what it's it's uh, wordpress.com URL might lead you to believe. Sure, sure. Mr. Laffy Laffington That's, over there. I'm just in a good mood. Um she said that that was the book that she chose that as the book's worst line. The Indian knows his village and feels for his huh. village, blah blah blah. Um and she says, in this line and a number of others, the novel romanticizes Canada's indigenous mm. people, even as it sympathizes with their hardships. So that's my first question, that's I guess, before we rebuttal. dive yeah. dive into plot stuff is like, to what extent is this like romanticizing and um, and I don't know what to what extent is it voyeurism a little bit to just like come and do your your volunteerism here and then leave. You know? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I'm hmm. I'm like struck by being like, huh, I found some of that repeated points in the book at least like I don't know, that's a good point because that's that's a white man telling another white man about this culture, which is yeah. I think the book is pretty clear about when that's happening, and I think it is at least aware that that is a limited point of view, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, the the stuff that is maybe more romanticized is the kind of ease with which this tribe like accepts Mark over time and the ways that they share their myths with him in ways that are like because it is a you know a a 180 page novel or whatever there's a lot of really strong symbolism that does a lot of work um but part of that is taking 
a central myth of the tribe that is portrayed in this book because I I don't know enough to say like what Craven is like getting from research and what is like I don't know what is firsthand so I don't want to I want to explicitly name a myth and have it only be like a half true thing sure um but like a central part of their culture is fishing and specifically kind of catching salmon during breeding times um and they refer to the salmon as the swimmer that comes through the river and kind of brings life into their village and like by the end of the book in a way the vicar is referred to as a swimmer and like has and he has literally helped this village and helped people in this village um and he is also aware of the limitations of his help and and who he has not helped but the way in which he becomes kind of one for one with one of their core myths yeah upon further reflection that is a little uh easy and a little <laughs> uh voyeuristic and assumptive i suppose mm-hmm. um huh, that's yeah that's that's where i'll start is did do you want to follow up on any of that just just um insofar as this this one minute book review thing makes a few other points sure, I'll, I'll just read the last like yeah. couple paragraphs of it or so um so she's talking about one of the one of the anecdotes from the story uh this brief parable like story lacks the moral spiritual and literary complexity of such great novels as death comes for the archbishop and diary of a country priest which may explain why it tends to appear today on young adult shelves uh, some minor characters serve mainly as vehicles for points the author wants to make, particularly about whites' insensitive, insensitivity to indigenous tribes. Uh, when a boorish American woman arrives via yacht and asks, how do you tell the Indians apart? Mark replies mildly that he did it the same way she told her friends apart because she knew them. Uh, the priest faces no crisis of the soul and expresses his faith in deeds, not creeds, and plain-spoken messages of hope. Um, he was young enough, Craven writes, to be a little proud of his first sermon, to which he had given considerable thought. It is better to be a small shrimp in the sea of faith than a dead whale on the beach. <laughs> yeah, I remember but, that. <laughs> <laughs> but, if the nov- but if the novel has a simple message, it's not, an, not a morbid one. Death is so common in King Come that Mark comes to see it as natural and at times heroic. The salmon that dies soon after spawning in nearby waters provide a central metaphor for his story and suggest its theme. Um, and it goes on like that. But yeah, so, so it sounds like... It, I mean, it's got some big, bigger truths in it, but yes. maybe like anecdote to anecdote, parable to parable, it's it's doing it in ways that that feel, I don't know, like feel not exploitative, but kind of uh, simplistic. Yeah, purpose. I think purposefully simplistic. Um, I don't think that the book is attempting new. Uh, okay, so this is an interesting thing to say about a book i don't think it is failing at nuance it thinks it's there i think it is deliberately eschewing nuance in service of a kind of melodramatic parable sure like it is not that that i noted that um bit this is like that's maybe two-thirds of the way through book through the book when this like rich yacht of white americans like rolls in and is like this is weird and it's clear that they suck and by this point you understand that mark is kind of embedded in this tribe and they're with him and he'll meet one or two challenges after that but for the most part they've got his back and he's got theirs and 
it's mostly there this moment to perhaps like remind the reader that those people still exist right that just because mark is a good dude doesn't mean that uh other white people are on the same level as mark um it is also a very like easy way for mark to show that he's like one of the good guys um without any sort of oh i knew someone who thinks that way i because he like he has a sister and we meet her very very briefly but other than that he has no like connections to the outside world other than his faith and his practice uh-huh so to that other point that the uh reviewer mentioned like we don't spend a lot of time in his head thinking too much about what's going on only because I don't think he has a lot of other frames of reference. The book does not give us a lot of other frames of reference for him. He's pretty okay. well isolated. Sure. Um, so the book happens in, in three big sections and given what we've talked about, I think I can kind of narrow down a little bit what happens just that. Yeah, let's do that. Cause I, th- I think we've talked enough about, I mean, just, it's just, it's a given that this, this is a white woman in like the sixties talking about an indigenous culture and it's going to like, it's going to be problematic because that's just the, the lens that it's viewed through. But yeah, yeah. Let's talk about which, what actually happens, what you thought about it, like things yeah. that Craven does well, like reasons why people still read this book now. Yeah, for sure. So he comes into the, into the village and we get this really interesting chapter where, and the book will occasionally do this kind of not link things um, with like an action or like an active event. It'll just be like, here's some stuff that happened in a row or here's some thoughts that happened in a row. And we get this whole chapter of the various members of the tribe like thinking about the new vicar and what it's going to mean for them. Um, and it's a way to reveal who these people are, like get like kind of like that opening montage of any new TV show where you're like, here, I need like to understand this person in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> here's like, here's a line of dialogue that nobody would say in real life that has a lot of exposition. In it. Sure. Like Marta is a grandmother of the tribe who is thinking of ways to care for him in ways that she also cares for the bishop when he comes to town. Um, Sam is an unlucky guy who treats his family really badly and he's going to ask the vicar for a loan probably. Uh, Peter is the carver um, who does a lot of totem carving and he wonders if the vicar knows that they live among the dead and and uh, Peter is one of the ones who talks to the vicar the most about their culture uh, dying and uh, eventually this village will just be a bunch of totems in the ground being covered with moss Um, we get this girl Kita who is one of the few characters who does not have an anglicized name at any point in the book. Okay. Um, and when I caught that in the first couple chapters and then she becomes a central part of uh, a relationship that is like at the heart of going away to the, you know, white Canada world and whether or not you're going to live, you know, come back to this village. Um, come on down to white Canada. <laughs> um, we meet like other white people who are not like up and up like Mark becomes like there's a teacher who's only in town because he's collecting enough money to pay for a trip to Greece. Um, there's a constant. Like he's a teacher because he's trying to save money. Like, no, he's, he's getting isolation pay for like being up oh, in okay. this village. All right. All right. Um, sorry. That just really, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's 
set off some alarm bells for me. Um, Wait, who told you you could? Who told you this was a thing you should do? <laughs> Uh, and the first third of the book closes with this, like, I guess they celebrate Christmas. And there's this sense that everyone is kind of tolerating the whole church thing. Like, that they're not there because they explicitly believe in the, in Christian teachings, but that they respect the institution of the church on this hyper-local level. Like, and they respect good people working in that system. Okay. Um, again, the book does not explore the fact that like how, what happened when that system first showed up, like it does not, is not interested. Um, but yeah, so they celebrate Christmas and he goes around to some of the other villages in the area, like wearing a Santa Claus outfit, like passing out gifts. Cool. It's very quick. Uh, we move on and then it like ends with him knowing everybody's name and feeling like they are his like parish that he is there to help you know through through tough times as it happens okay um and then part 2 is called the depth of sadness and this i alluded to the the book overall is him coming to understand this inherent quality of of the people of this region which i think craven is really trying to say is about the maybe not so slow motion death of their village on a local on a micro level and their culture on a macro level so there's this chapter where all the men come home from fishing because it's all very seasonal and the children including the teens come home from school um and there's this unease in the village and i think it's peter the carver who says it is always so when the young come back from school my people are proud of them and resent them and goes on to talk about them kind of like disrespecting their customs and uh, not ta- not speaking their traditional language. Um, so it has this vibe of like, take your standard everyday, like, ugh, teens feelings uh-huh. of like not understanding them and not knowing why they won't get off your lawn. Um, and just not wanting to be on the same train car as them. Yeah, just like, I don't need to know what's, <laughs> I don't need to know what Snapchat is, but can you just do it over there? Like, I'm so dimly I- aware that <laughs> Cardi B is a thing, but Andrew. what? funny is it it's a funny example to me (laughs) um so like take those like i don't even know if that's a teen thing like that might be like a 20 something thing i don't know i I don't know anything about anything anymore yeah i think um that's a you don't listen to the radio thing i think that is a thing yes you don't listen to the radio not that i think teens listen to the radio so then again where are we you're talking about the radio as like a as a as a figurative source of new music uh, sure. where like might, you might be talking about just like going to YouTube and listening to videos with like the song lyrics superimposed over uh, yeah. pictures of the band. Yes. Um, so take those kind of pop culture feelings, but now ratchet it up by 50, you know, times 50 because it's not pop culture. It's your culture that is slowly being eroded by European settlers. Excuse me. And, now your like teens go off to those schools and come back not wanting to uh like maintain your traditions. So um one of the things that happens is there's this big these big parties called the potlatches, which I referred to earlier. Um it became a catch-all term for uh, a bunch of different communal practices uh, in the region between a bunch of different nations and cultures. Um, that means like to give or a gift. 
and it's these feasts where you give stuff away and you also have like uh, dancing and, and music and, and stuff like that. It was actually outlawed in 1884, which the book makes mention of, um, which is with an amendment to the Indian Act, which is like Canada's standing law for how it uh, works with indigenous people. Um, uh-huh. Because Canada didn't make treaties because the treaties were actually like signed by Britain, I guess. Because Canada didn't exist when contact was made. Like, think okay. about that, right? Uh-huh. So Canada has this like whole law that, of course, none of the First Nation people agreed to. So there's lots of reason to critique it and, and whittle away at it. And it took like 70 years for this law outlawing potlatches to actually go away, even though it was not really being enforced. And the reason that they were outlawing it, and the book kind of talks about this as well, is that it flies in the face of like Christian capitalism to like throw a big party in your son's or nephew's honor and like give away all your stuff to like as some sort of cultural transaction. Uh-huh. And um, the contemporaneous folks supporting this law were saying things like, how will they uh, ever advance or become industrious if they, if they don't give up this practice? Cause this practice basically like prevented full quote-unquote assimilation sure. um so one of the things that happens at the potlatch in the middle of the book is that Keita's sister has agreed to marry a white man and he comes to the potlatch and he gets a guy drunk and convinces him to sell him one of his like masks for like 50 bucks which is bad this is every party i've ever been to <laughs> <laughs> yeah Always okay. getting, always getting drunk and selling a mask. Selling your sacred family's mask for fifty bucks. Yeah. Um, and then she, you know, leaves town with him to go get married in Vancouver or whatever, and she has kind of disappeared. And here's one of those little. Th- now this kind of spins off into other things, like the elders kind of going into a, a shameful exile for a few months. But this is one of those beats that I think that review alluded to, Andrew, where like the author makes a point but doesn't really deal with the ramifications of that point. Okay. So Keita's sister gets dumped by this dude after they get back to Vancouver. Um, We just hear this like third hand from a policeman and he says that she like got lost, was completely broke, started working at a bar. And then, like, got addicted to drugs and died in the matter of, like, three months. Ugh. Now, this is not a character that we spent more than two pages with. Right. It's It feels a little, like, checking off a box of rough stuff that happens in this kind of relationship between Canada and First Nations people. But it isn't a fully realized, like, story. Does that make sense? Like, it... You know, dealing with issues of substance abuse and alcoholism and how that affects, uh, you know, marginalized communities. Do you, I mean, do you, do you mean it feels like a story that could come from anywhere instead of from this community specifically? Or yes. Do you mean yeah. So? Okay. It, it feels like it is a it is checking off a how 
folks from these villages might get exploited and like run aground on something without actually having us invest in this character in any way. Right. Or even in the specific culture, it's just like, look what, look what happens. Yeah. And, and so on the one hand, I think it is delivered the way it's delivered because this book is functioning more as a, you know, an anthropological parable than it is a, you know, exploration of people's inner lives Mm -hmm. um but considering that there are other stories that tackle these issues uh with greater nuance like it's just something that that kind of struck me as like "Mm, okay um the one that i think actually kind of fleshes out and this is the heart of the book is this kid gordon um his mom who's like 46 he's like the oldest of six kids he's like a teenager he's pretty old for someone who's going to school his mom dies in childbirth And uh, his mom asks Mark, Mark Bryan, our young Victor, to help Gordon. Victor again? Yeah, just check. Craig. Um, (laughs) There's no one named Victor in this book. Just clarifying. Um, She gets Mark to promise to help Gordon go to school, and that actually means like leaving the village and for a a long period of time and going to a a all white school. um, And just all Victors. All Victors over there. Um, and getting wall a real good wall. education. And of course, this is like, is this going to change him? Is he ever going to come back? It, the book doesn't really explore why um, why there are not, you know, native-led schools for them to go to. Um, but all the, the point being, uh, this kid is going to go away and people are worried that he is not going to be the same and he's not going to want to come back, including Kita, who he is promised to um, in marriage. And after he comes back, after a couple months of being away at school, um, he's very different and he's dressed in a suit and he's like not he's not interested in eating meals the same way that he's supposed to. Um, and they say, hey, are you going to stay or are you gonna like leave and he's like i'm gonna leave and i'm gonna take kita with me and uh they don't kita doesn't make it like she lasts a couple months out there has a real rough time gordon has changed and she kind of retreats back to the village and that is done with a sense with with a greater investment of like mark cares specifically for the people that are involved in this predicament um we actually see kind of the rise and fall of different characters like becoming invested in Gordon. Jim has a thing for Kita and he hopes to marry Kita. So he, you kind of get the sense that maybe he is rooting for this to go bad. Um, but he's also like a good guy who's going to catch Kita when she falls. So like this is a, a, a bigger exploration of this theme of like how do we... How does this culture, rather, how does this village exist in a world that is changing and changing rapidly um, and learn more about it without uh, completely abandoning where people came from? Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of, uh, what's that, se- the, the fourth season of The Wire, Andrew, uh-huh. where uh, Bunny Colvin takes the kids, like, from the really, from the, the like older kids from the rough school to like go to a fancy dinner right and they just don't fit in um, well it's like so so it's 
if you haven't seen this, it's yeah. um the whole plot line is about trying to just like do something different in a in a not a failing city school, but I think what's kind of a typical underfunded, yeah, predominantly yeah. black city school. Yes. Um. So the the theory is that you take these underperforming kids out of these classes, you let the kids who who want to learn like learn without disruption, and then you try and figure out a way to speak to the trouble kids separately. Yes. And a carrot to some of these kids is like if you if you do the best at this thing that involves I, I forget what the specific activity is but I think it's primarily like communication and teamwork and and just like applying yourself to like doing a thing yeah uh, we will take you out to a fancy restaurant and it will be a reward but they do that and these these kids have no context for that environment so what might be seen as a treat for other people is just like this alien stressful and kind of humiliating a little bit experience for these kids because they just they realize how out of place they are and it makes them so deeply uncomfortable and it's it's just the saddest scene because because leading leading up to it like there has been some success in like speaking to them and and meeting them where they are and and I don't know, making some progress with them, and it just goes so far off the rails in that moment. And I, and I don't want to pretend that that this situation is a one to one to that. I just was reminded of how like Kita's experience living with a white woman in Vancouver while she's kind of boarding there, and the woman really not knowing how to help her and bungling that interaction and. Kita realizing that the person she was supposed to come here with is not the person she she thought he was in the first place and she also then remarks and this is what reminded me of that stuff from the wire is kind of like going through that process leaves you in kind of a middle spot where you are no longer who you were before nor are you like fully on the other side of wherever you expected to be Um, She says, to be an Indian in my own village is to be free as no white man is ever free, and it is to live behind a wall. So she is, like, deliberately sheltering herself from this outside world that she is now aware of and not okay with. Um, But she also has that knowledge, and I guess she's talking about being free in her own, and Jim talks about this too, Um, I think appreciating what they have more for having experienced what is out there. Um, It's just a really fascinating, like these younger characters who are in this transitionary moment and, and how they interact with Mark, they are all more complicated and interesting than Mark is. Mark is this guy (laughs) who's just kind of like slowly dying and doesn't know it and is coming to understand that everybody who lives here, like really fights to live here and really wants their home to succeed and and be well and is willing to give anybody anything to make that happen uh-huh. um but there's this temptation to go out and and good reason i think for some of the characters to go out and see what else the world has to offer but a lot of folks see the world as kind of like taking their little world and and wearing it away sure um so then the the other stuff that i just liked about the book is the language is really strong i think the simplicity gives it uh an edge in a way like it's not you know it's um here's from from the end of the book 
Past the village flowed the river like time, like life itself, waiting for the swimmer to come again on his way to the climax of his adventurous life and to the end for which he had been made. Um, there's another section earlier where she's just talking about, I thought this book did a really good job of just putting you in the Pacific Northwest, just like in the woods. You mean like Twilight? Um, yeah, like Twilight. <laughs> um, I was like, I like being in the woods, even though I've never really worked for it i've never really gone like old school never worked for the woods i've never like gone and pitched a tent in the woods and just like lit like hung out oh you mean like you've never worked to achieve a state of camping yes not like you were never employed by woods i was never also that i've never been employed by trees um in november they're sticklers oh my god you know they sap all your time and energy. They really do. Oh, what a birch. <laughs> we have to leave off this line of joking around. <laughs> I'm getting a little okay, nutty. Okay, what happens now? The passage <laughs> in you, November. Do you hear that? You hear that one? I, dude. Mm-hmm. <sighs> There's. She says... <laughs> In November, the rain fell in a slow and patient drizzle. Already the rain had become an element of life like the air Mark breathed, and when it stopped, he missed it somehow and found himself listening for the drip, drip, drip that seemed now a necessary and comforting component of his life. And there's just, there's, I don't know, there's stuff like that that really got me in a mood to go be out in nature into the, the woods into to go into the woods see i couldn't uh, i can't read this i couldn't read that book and feel that way right now because like may to early oh, june sure. is the, the allergy corridor and i just wish i was like in cryogenic stasis for <laughs> six weeks yeah that's but i can yeah. see how one would feel that those way. trees are messing up your face it sucks because they're so pretty but they really are just all in my eyes and nose. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, I think this book, if you come to this book with proper expectations, I think you'll, you can get a lot out of it as I think I did. But yeah, I, I feel like you probably did come to it with like just knowing, yeah, this is what the book is up to and this is the specific ways in which it will be deficient. And so I will endeavor to enjoy it in that context yeah and and it's not even stuff that always feels explicitly like woof you really whiff that one craven like it's right. more judging it by how i might expect contemporary authors to tackle this material it was not doing some of those things because it's well, 50 for, years old yeah you know? and for, for me some of the some of the I guess the pitfalls here in like reading a white person write about yeah, white people is, is this is an uncritical part of my brain. That's just going to be like, wow, this is so, this is so powerful. And I really feel like I've experienced this yes. thing where in reality, like what you, what I've done is I've experienced a person similar to me experiencing a thing, but I have yeah. not experienced the thing. And so True. I always just, I try to, if any, if anything, maybe I overcorrect a little bit, but I'm just I I try to be hyper aware of myself doing that so I can correct for it. So I just want to close on something I think is the most interesting and the central tension of the book. Um, in the passage, the same chapter where those kind of obnoxious American yachters come through, there is a British anthropologist, a white woman who comes through, 
And she's just trying to learn about the village. She's just there to like get everybody's stories, learn about some myths, take some notes. Um, she ends up getting like really boat sick and like having a bad time, and it's played <laughs> it's played for laughs. Um, but there's this moment where she is talking to Mark, and she says, "If the white man had not intruded, the village would be a stronghold of a culture which was almost gone." And she's like waxing about how kind of some of the stuff that we've been talking now about, like, man, if. Uh, European settlers hadn't come through and ruined everything like I could have just come to this pristine like it does have this vibe of like I could have shown up to this pristine culture and just observed it through a microscope you know right Mm -hmm. and Mark's response is no people no culture can remain static Uh, again echoing the thing I said at the beginning of the show where he is like okay things went bad but here we are and what are we going to do about it Um, he then goes on to be a little bit more romantic and say if anything, I've learned from my time here is that probably man will just like go away and the birds and fish will be here. And like nature probably doesn't change that much. But like man, who knows? Like he's kind of like. makes me think about the birds and fish just like waiting in the, in the <laughs> sidelines. It's the owl. It's the owl, narrowed. man. Oh no, really? He's coming for us all. Oh, man, he's going to say our names, isn't he? Yeah. Um, so I think that's like the tension of the book is what what role do you know does someone like mark have to help to uh learn about a culture that's different than him how does he learn about it without impacting it um now that you know folks have moved around the world and and displaced people and um taken their crap like taken their life and taken their land like what do we do now and and there isn't an easy transactional way to like fix that. Um, so Mark, Mark is this kind of, he's a cipher in a way for that very question. Um, he's way too simple of a character to have a say in it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but his existence, like just is that question. Like, what are we going to do about it? And then the owl calls his name and he dies, right? Yeah. It's everybody's sad he dies about before it. His mystery cancer can Correct. Get him. Um, people have started to notice that he's a little tired and gaunt, but he doesn't like really know that he's sick. He's just like, huh, I guess I'm feeling kind of bad. That's just that's just me. Like I and the doctor said I'm great. So <laughs> that's well, just how being an adult feels like. Just keep your ears out for those owls, man. They're coming that's for That's why you. I live in Philadelphia. We got trash sandwiches, we got a bad bell, but I don't think we have a lot of owls. I don't think that we do. Stay away from the zoo. That's the secret to eternal youth is just finding a place with no owls. Uh, that's true. If you, if the owl has called your name and you lived, and you, you have lived to tell the tale, you can tell us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Um, this is our first podcast in like together recording in like two weeks it's the first one um, we've recorded since twilight even though i think we've released three like, hours of content <laughs> between now uh, and then. so we gotten a lot of great responses to both to actually to twilight the power uh our stop homer time episodes that went up on the main feed so thanks to among others katie fritz grace hannah mike emily glenn marion amanda rachel holly sean quixote lucas emma uh lizzie adam caitlin christine holly Paul also want to thank Bo who recommended this book via our Patreon project. Andrew, what's that all about? Um, Patreon's a way to give us money if you want. 
That's at patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can find links to that and more at overduepodcast.com. Also up there, we have links to our Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and RSS feeds. You can use all of those to subscribe to the show and get all these new episodes whenever they drop. Whenever that is, usually Mondays, sometimes not. Um, if you subscribe in Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, do rate and review us. It helps the show rise in the rankings, and it just makes us feel good about ourselves when we see something good. Um, I feel like, so, okay, so we got the live show, which we talked about at the top of the show. Again, that's bit.ly slash overdue 2018 which i uh, definitely remembered yes um so where that's gonna be um june 23rd right saturday yeah at the philly improv theater we're gonna be reading Redwall and talking about it because books where bad things happen to cute animals have just been good for us <laughs> they're treating live us shows well. in general what are you um, reading next week andrew bring it home i will be reading childhood's end by arthur c clark Rock and roll. Rock and roll. And also, I guess I feel like I need to say that, yes, we are reading the rest of the Twilight books. We're figuring it out. You vultures. You made us do it. You better be happy. (laughs) Uh, You should be happy. And if you can't, you should at least try to be happy. Bye. That was a HeadGum Podcast.